I'm Paul Comfort, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Transit Unplugged. We have an awesome interview today for our podcast with Dave Genova, CEO of the Denver Regional Transportation District. Dave gives us some insight into his background coming from the safety and asset management field, how they're building out a massive rail and BRT system around the Denver area, and what he sees as the future of transit. It's a fascinating interview from one of the top leaders in our industry and an all-around outstanding guy on today's episode of Transit Unplugged. What does it mean to be a successful public transit agency? What are you doing to lead the way? It's time to learn from the top transit professionals in North America. This is Transit Unplugged with your host, Paul Comfort. I'm Paul Comfort, your host of Transit Unplugged. And today we're at the APTA Bus and Paratransit Conference in Tampa, Florida. And I'm excited to be with Dave Genova, who is the CEO of Denver RTD, one of the greatest transit systems in America. I'm not just saying that because you're here. I really believe it. It's great to have you with us, Dave. Well, thank you, Paul. Thanks for the compliment on the agency. I wish everybody in our backyard felt that way uh, every day. It's good to hear. Thank you. What's that street you've got downtown where you've kind of made it a transit street? 16th Street Mall. It was originally built in 1983 is when we opened that for service. It's kind of a combination transit mall and pedestrian mall. It's interesting you ask about it, Paul, because we're right now working with the city and county of Denver, the downtown Denver partnership. You know, the mall's reached its useful life, its construction. We're spending about a million dollars a year maintaining the transit way. So we want to rebuild the entire mall, but not just... Uh, rebuild the transit way, but the city's interested in making it uh, a great space for people to, to connect and hang out and linger. And of course, it's a vital piece. It's it's not just a shuttle that we operate. It's a vital piece of the first and final mile for us in downtown. Okay. The 16th Street Mall connects our major transit centers at either end of downtown, our Civic Center Station, and of course, our multimodal Denver Union Station, which is just grown beyond all uh, all capacity in the last few years after we've renovated and turned it truly into a, a multimodal hub. There's about $3 billion worth of private development just wow. happening around Union Station. But the, but the mall shuttle, a couple of interesting things. We move about 45,000 people a weekday. Okay. About 80% of the people that take that shuttle have already taken transit into Denver, and they're using that for their first and final mile. And about 40% of the people that commute or, or that work downtown are taking transit to commute. And then the final very exciting thing about the mall shuttle, we just have a brand new fleet on there. It's 36 all-electric buses. I think somebody told me it's the largest electric subfleet in the U.S. just wow. yesterday. So we're, That's awesome, Dave. Uh, so we're very excited about the electrification, and we think it's the future of, of power plants on transit coaches. And we certainly jumped into the electrification area. That's great. When I was at MTA in Baltimore, we looked at what you were doing at 16th Street as a model for what we wanted to do in downtown Baltimore. And the other thing we kind of copied after you, you did the Denver Eagle light rail P3. And of course, I was doing the purple line in Baltimore, I mean, near DC. And we ended up with the same companies that had led your concessionaire group as ours. And we were so happy because they had learned all all the stuff they needed to learn on yours so they wouldn't make any issues with ours. So it's kind of funny, the connections. Yes, it's interesting. (laughs) It's a small world that we live in in transit and uh, hopefully they did learn some things to apply on your project that project's light rail ours was commuter rail three, oh, that's right. three yeah, yeah. commuter rail lines all the rolling stock a new maintenance facility we've got one more line to get open to get that entire project pushed across the line uh, the great thing about that project is our commuter rail service to the airport the university of colorado a line okay uh, ridership's growing almost by the day we're over twenty thousand people weekday 
are riding that line, and we're starting to even look at capacity about whether we need wow. to put more cars out uh, on that line or not. It's been a, a great, well-received uh, service by the public with about 35,000 employees that work at DIA. And, of course, uh, I think it's about the fifth busiest airport now in the country. Yeah, so flown through there many times. <laughs> it's great service. So now, we, uh, we like it. I want to talk about your background in a minute, but since we've already kind of we dove right in here, tell us about the scope of service. What do you all operate there at RTD? How many employees? What's your budget? That kind of stuff. Well, I think one of the really unique things about us is, unlike a lot of major metropolitan areas, we are the single transit provider for the entire Denver metropolitan region, meaning uh, we provide the fixed fixed route bus services, we provide paratransit services, we provide light rail, and we provide commuter rail services. So all integrated under one agency, integrated schedules, integrated fare, and, and payment. Nice. So, I, yeah, I think I think uh, the seamlessness of the integration seems to work really well, uh, where we're not kind of chopped up with different uh, payment platforms or different yeah. kinds of scheduling. We're all integrated into one, uh, one organization. Our current uh, operating budget is just over $600 million a year okay. for operations. We operate about 1,000 buses. We have 172 light rail vehicles, 66 commuter rail vehicles. I don't know the number of routes off the top of my head. 10,000 bus stops. Well, another unique thing about us is our 10, service area. 10,000 bus stops, yeah. dude. Yeah, and our, and our service area, Paul, okay. 20, 2,400 square miles is our service area. I think there's only a few other transit agencies that are that size, and that yeah. gives us uh, you know, some significant challenges because as we get out into the really uh, suburban and even less suburban outreaches of our district, it's very challenging to provide cost-effective uh, service in those areas. But you know, we've addressed that in some regards by a service is what we call call and ride. And it's really microtransit that we've been operating for probably two decades now. Wow. And we use, uh, we have 22 distinct operating areas where we have call and ride services. It's a cutaway van, they're all lift equipped. And much of what I heard in the mobility session today on the mobility workshop is a lot of the things we're already doing and have been doing for a long time. It really is mobility on demand, but it was you know, the uh, the old name, Call and Ride, we're working on, you know, rebranding that to make it a little bit more glamorous and, and to fit kind of a little bit more of the, the technology and mobility on demand things that are that are happening today. So that's kind of the scope of services okay. we operate. We have an elected board of directors, 15, 15 board members that... They're elected that by the I public? To. They are elected. And wow. they, each, uh, they each represent one geographic area okay. of our district. All right. So it's a, a, you know, a very interesting dynamic. They're, they're very good at operating regionally, even yeah. though they represent an area. Uh, but it's, uh, They look for it's, the greater good. It's a good work, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and how are you funded? Our funding is predominantly a 1% sales tax. Uh, that's that's the that's lion's nice share number. of our revenue. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's about 60% of our revenue. Okay. Uh, when we were originally formed as an agency in 1969, our sales tax base was 0.6, and we call that our base system. In 2004, we were successful with an inc- uh, with our what we call our fast tracks program, and that was a sales tax initiative increase of four tenths of a cent. And with that, we were able to build out a lot of commuter rail, light rail bus rapid transit, and we still have a couple projects underway in, in that particular area as well. And employee counts, those kind of things? About 2,900 employees. Okay. And we also contract out about 50% of our fixed route bus. We contract out our paratransit, and, and of course our commuter rail is under the P3 or concession agreement. So there's a lot of contracted employees out right. there too. I remember like 20 years ago when I was at Mayflower, 
Don't you all have some kind of law that says you have to outsource a certain amount of work? Like you're very unique in that respect? Originally, it was a, a legislation that was passed at the state level a long time ago, yeah. and, it was, and it was a minimum. It was a minimum of 20% of our uh, rubber tired service had to be contracted out. And okay. So that legislation has changed over time where that minimum's risen, and, and now we have, I think, the legislation reads that there's a ceiling of about 57%. So we can't go more than 57% okay. right. contracted out. And I would say right now we're probably right around 54% of the fixed route is contracted out. And who does that work for you? Right now, uh, we have about four different contracts. Oh, okay. Uh, you spread it out, not just yeah, one. Yeah, don't yeah. put all your eggs in one and basket. I, I just saw right. the providers, <laughs> and uh, it's escaping me. That's right all right. Don't worry. But it's split up among a number of providers. Yeah, two different yeah. providers right okay. now. Four different RFP contracts. Gotcha. You know, one of the, um, I've just come up with a new deal I'm uh, speaking about around the country called the five hidden flaws of most major transit systems. Kind of came to me as I analyzed things. And one of the ones that came to me was a concern I had at MTA. So we had 3,300 employees in Baltimore. We had 2,000 contractors. And a lot of those are like embedded from these big architectural engineering firms and these hard caps of pin caps, the number of employees that you're allowed to have that are put in place by budgets or boards or governments. But you need those positions. And so you end up contracting out for them, paying more than you would have otherwise because you have to pay overhead to these big companies, et cetera. Are you, do you see that around the industry too as an issue? Well, I think in, in our area, we don't really have a hard cap on, oh, okay. on employee headcount. I mean, we typically deal with a headcount every year during our budget process yeah. or every half year during our amended budget cycle that, that we take a look at. And I would say it's always challenging to add any headcount. Right. But, you know, over the last few years, what we've been doing is, is we've, been th- we've been looking at the approach of, you know, if it's budgeted, it doesn't make a difference to us whether that person, you know, if we can bring those people on board, turn them into a full-time FTE, yes. and then pay less per person, but still stay within what we're budgeted for, that right. that's kind of the model we've been using. What a brilliant idea, Dave. <laughs> well, and, and of course, in some areas, you know, it's it's more challenging than that because a lot of times we're bringing in expertise. I was going to say, there is some specialty stuff, right? Right, yeah. right. There's specialty stuff that either we can't afford to bring in that talent yeah. or we don't have a long-term need for that kind of talent. Right. So we, that have, to, makes we sense. have to use consultants and contractors. Yeah. And, and that works really well. And we use that model as we staffed up for our Fast Tracks program. It was a, to date, we've invested about five and $5.6 billion worth of transit infrastructure in Fast Tracks and various, various wow. projects. And so to do that model, we brought on a program a management consultant. Yes, and yeah, that makes about, sense. At about half of the staff necessary to do that capital program. Right. And so it was a good mix. You know, they're embedded with our staff. It's, like, it's truly an extension of staff. You don't really know who's an RTD employee and who's working for a consultant when you walk down the hall. And oftentimes... Right. I'll ask a question of like, oh, I didn't realize that person works for uh, yeah. uh, Jacobs or right. LTK or, right. or whoever. Now that to me makes sense. That's a good use of those positions because just like you said, it's a temporary project. You don't want to have all that pension liability and everything else you get with that employee. But that's a good approach. I mean, that's nice to hear that you guys don't have to have a hard cap. I want to get to that tracks program, but I want to get back to your career. We never got to talk yeah. about that because your career is really interesting. So tell us how, to, how in the world did you end up as CEO of the, <laughs> what rank are you, would you say, of a fifth largest transit system or something like that? Or what do you do now based on miles or vehicles? Well, or? well we're in the top 10 when yes. you take out the legacy systems. We're one of the top 10 transit agencies thought, yeah. by, by size. And, you know, I always like to ask when I'm at leadership classes or we're in one of our development programs, but I always like to ask how many people planned on a career in transportation. <laughs> and you yeah. see very few hands That's go right. up, and I'm one of those. So... I have a bachelor's degree in geology. I did about three years in the oil and gas industry, and then I went into the environmental field. 
and did a lot of safety work. And then I started in transit. I answered an ad in the newspaper, right? They, you know, it's uh, not only do I feel wow. like a dinosaur when I tell this story, yeah, yeah. but you know, everyone tells you you never get at, you never get jobs out of the newspaper. Right. You get jobs by networking. But 24 years ago, I answered an ad for the safety and environmental manager at RTD, and okay. uh, here I am, 24 years later, as the general manager and CEO. So most of my experience and my career in transit has been as the chief safety officer at RTD. I've also had the security role there. I oversaw facilities for a while. And then another thing that I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about is while I was assistant general manager of safety, security, and facilities, which was a position I had immediately previous to the GM and CEO role, I was our executive sponsor or champion for our asset management and state of good repair program. And uh, that's a program we started in, in 2010. We're way ahead of the regs on this and we're getting some great data. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but it's a great program. We're using it a, a a lot for our enterprise risk management, making some good data-driven decisions because of that. That's great. Of that program that, that's put in place. So uh, so I've been the GM and CEO now for three years. Okay. And so uh, it's been a great industry. I've been engaged a lot with APTA as far as working on committees. And now I'm on the executive committee and on the, on the board of directors of APTA. And Congratulations. I'm big on professional development and that's one thing that I like to stress when I talk about my story is just that, you know, I continue to develop every day. I'm not done. I'm not over. Every day I'm learning something, and I really like to work with our people and mentoring people within our organization and within the industry and giving back and really helping coach, mentor, and, and develop people. So interesting side story, Paul. Uh, when I was assistant general manager, and we had the general manager at, at the time when I went into that role is a gentleman by the name of Cal Marcella. And he's, oh, he's passed I now, Cal. unfortunately. Yeah. But, but he really was the visionary behind Fast Tracks. Ah. And, I, you know, we, I think we have him to thank for where we are today as far as, as casting that vision. But one day I was in his office and he said to me, he said, Dave, one day when you're going to be the GM and you will be one day. And I was, I was, uh, I left that meeting thinking, hmm, I'd never really thought about it before. But it was, it was that day when Cal planted that seed that kind of put the aspiration in me to be a general manager. And then the other thing that was really interesting, I think, about, about my story is that I just didn't want to be a GM anywhere. I'm just incredibly privileged and fortunate that I'm the GM and CEO in my hometown of, yeah, of Denver. Right. That's what I like about it the most. I love that I have a job where I get up every morning and get to serve the community, number one, and I get to work alongside a great team of people that we have. Now, I know more than many that a GM job is 24-7, but what do you like to do for fun? I mean, there's, Denver's a great city to live in. There's lots of stuff there, right? Denver is a great city. You know, we're known for being kind of an outdoor city and right. people being active. And when I'm not working, I'm trying to get in a workout. I like cycling, bicycling. In the summertime, I ride my cruiser bike to work every day. That's really? a cruiser pedal bike. Okay. I'm able to just jump on my bike, put on some shorts and a t-shirt and of course a helmet. I, be yeah. I believe in safety <laughs> and basically get on a bike trail and get to work in about 20 minutes. And it's a great way to, you know, get a little exercise in the morning, enjoy the summer weather. Yeah. and show up at work and invigorated and ready to go. So I, I enjoy good. doing that. And uh, my wife and I are big believers in our community. We give back in a lot of different ways. We like to mentor. We really believe in marriage, and it's, uh, it's probably the most important thing to us. And so we spend a lot of time working with young couples and with 20-somethings and, oh, wow. and doing mentoring and that. And, and, wonderful, and we right? find it very rewarding. But as you probably know, Paul, when you step into a mentoring role, people think that the mentees are often thinking, wow, I'm going to get so much out of this. Thank you for doing this. But I think we get more out of it uh, than the mentees. So, we, you know, we continue to grow as we, as we give back. And so those, those are some of the things that we get engaged in and we like to do and yeah, enjoy. Yeah, that's great. 
So let's go to that Fast Tracks program. So yeah. tell me about that. And then also, you guys are so innovative. One thing I want you to touch on, if we can remember this call conversation, is I was at a conference a year or two ago when one of your young men was talking about using unmanned aerial drones yeah. to check out the asset management, which I brought back to people I was working with. And I've told that story to like 20 people. And people are like, oh, now it's kind of more common. People are using it more. But you were one of the first ones to do it. So tell yeah. us about that and then about Fast Tracks. And All right. Well, yeah. well, let's talk about the use of the drone first. Then we'll get into Fast yeah. Tracks because that's that's probably a, a bigger story. Okay. So. You know, I already told you earlier that I was I was the one that was kind of the executive sponsor for asset management right. and state of good repair within right. the organization. And in fact, back in about 2010, it came out of one of our board retreats as a strategic priority for us. And I was really glad to see that, you know, the foresight of our board and listening to a couple ideas us as staff kind of threw up against the wall at the retreat as areas that where we needed to be focused. And so we stood up the program. We have about 16 uh, employees that make up that division. The division reports up through safety, so it's truly, it's really? truly an independent Asset uh, management reports through safety? Yes, it does. That and, is something. And we set it up that way, and uh, you know, I thought it was great because it was independent, and it's not like you have people that are responsible for programs you know, looking at the assets. Right. And so we knew when we embarked on this, it was going to be a challenging area because, you know, people don't want you looking up under their tent, right? That's right, yeah. And so we, you know, we took on the mindset of, you know, we weren't going to be looking at procedures or policies or how people did things or, or really the quality of what they were doing. We really focused in on doing the condition assessments of the assets. Okay. And and so from there, you know, we've, uh, we, we fortunately did an Oracle conversion a number of years before that. So we had a lot of data that we could start mining. And so we had to do a bunch of different patches and some other different software and everything. But but we're using a variety of different data. We're looking at performance of the asset. We're looking at the age of the asset. And then one other uh, one of the components that's uh, escaping me right now, but I'll, I'll, I'll think of it as we're going. But we basically have three pieces of reliability. So, okay, all right. so we're looking at the cost to maintain, we're looking at reliability, and we're looking at the age of the asset. It all rolls up into a condition assessment. The team can give us an overall score for RTD as an organization. We can do it according to rolling stock. We can go down to subfleet. We can even look at systems and components on the fleets and on the on the subfleets. So we can drill down and see, hey, if this subfleet's getting a lower score than than another subfleet, we can go in and ask the question, well, why is it? I mean, we can drill down to, is it a component like the HVAC unit or yeah. transmission or, or something else that's driving the driving the score one one way or the other. And so, that helps you do your capital budget, right, for your planning. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And the other great thing about it is that we've got such confidence in what we're doing on the condition assessments because every asset gets a condition assessment every year. So rolling stock, wow, that's infrastructure a lot of work. That's on the why rail, you need 16 facilities. People, right, right. right. And, and the great news about that 16 people is they're mostly people internal to the organization. You know, one guy came from facilities, people came from bus, people yeah. came from IT, people came from procurement. So we were really able to collect all of their years of experience and put all that together and build all that information in, which was uh, really, really great. And that's where you use the drone? Fast forward to the drone. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, the team came to me and they said, hey, Dave, we want to we wanna start using drones. And particularly they were talking about the rail right away because instead of having to schedule windows and impact the operating schedule and patrons with having to work around work crews, they said, what if we use drones and we didn't even, we won't even have to interrupt service. We don't have to put people out there in safety with safety right. considerations yeah. or, in, or in harm's way. And you know, the very first thing I thought it was, I thought, well, this is really great. But I told the team, I said, I can already see the article, RTD's new toy. So I was very worried about how that was going to get rolled out from a publicity 
aspect. And I said, you know, we really have to have this story told well about what a great asset, what a great tool this is to us. Because I don't want people thinking, hey, we're just using it because it's the next newest shiny thing, right. kind of a toy. But it's it's been great. So we use it to do asset condition assessments along the rail line. And then we've also been using it for uh, for other activities that we didn't uh, imagine it at first. So, you know, we had a we had a roof leak on one of our facilities. We couldn't figure out what was going on. We put the drone up there with a thermal camera and we could see where the leak was underneath the roof and, and fix that. We've used them to film our emergency drills so that then we can go back and use that as part of our debriefing. So it's been a really great tool. That's great. All right, fast tracks. Okay, fast tracks. 2004 voter approved tax increase of four tenths really to build out about six or seven corridors and our redevelop our Denver Union Station. Rebuild out rail, BRT, what? What are we talking about? Combination. So okay. it was commuter rail, light rail, bus rapid transit, and a complete renovation and rebuilding of Denver Union Station and, and truly turning it into a multimodal hub. I've got to come see that, man. you got to yeah. come. Hey, we yeah. got the rail conferences there, <laughs> yeah, in, uh, it's true. Is there yeah. in June. Come, come check us out. So the original program called for about 122 miles of rail and a bus rapid transit line, about six or so corridors. And we were successful in building most of it out. Of course, you know, right after the, uh, we were successful getting the, getting the vote passed, you know, we went into that recession of 2007, 2008. So we estimate we lost about a billion dollars of revenue during that wow. recessionary period. Huge impact on our ability to build out the program. At the same time, we saw huge increases in uh, the cost of construction materials. And so our original estimate was about $4.6 billion, I believe, to build out our program. We were a couple of years into it, and because of these factors, the recession, because of the rising costs of construction materials and diesel fuel and other things, and the rise and rising cost of labor, you know, we realized we had about a $2 billion gap to be able to build out what we needed to be built out. So fast forward to today, uh, we've invested about $5.6 billion into the program. We've completed everything except for four elements of the program. One of them's a fairly long commuter rail line. It's about one, it's about a $1.6 billion project from Denver up to Boulder and Longmont. And then we have a, a few, three other smaller projects uh, that are remaining. So we figured we need about another 2.2 billion of capital to complete the project. But I think the good news and the good story to tell is, you know, we thought it was going to be a $4.6 or $7 billion program, and we've been able to bump that up to $5.6 billion. That's great. While we still have to get a couple other projects done and we're still fully committed to it, we think we've done a good job building out the system. Its uh, ridership's been good all throughout. So I'll try to break it down. It was uh, two light rail lines, one bus rapid transit line, and three commuter rail lines is what we've built wow. so far. We're working on, we have another commuter rail line under construction that'll open in a couple of years and then another light rail extension underway. And of course, Denver Union Station. And around Denver Union Station, before we did fast tracks and the renovation to Union Station, it was just rail yard and vacant parcels. Now it's like a brand new downtown, Paul. We estimate there's about $3 billion worth of private development happening around Denver Union Station. Wow. An incredible success story. Uh, the financial models are way ahead. We were able to pay off our RIF loans. I think nice. we were the first agency ever to pay off a wow. RIF loan, and now we're trying to get our credit risk premium back out of uh, DOT. But they don't have a mechanism to repay those. Because nobody's, nobody's done it before. So pay the way. Huh? It's been great. But, yeah. uh, you know, we consider Fast Tracks to be very successful. We've got, uh, we've got some work left. We get a lot of organizations that come and visit us and say, 
you know, how did you get fast tracks done? How did you get the, the support around the vote? And of course, I think another unique thing about Denver, our Metro Mayor's Caucus, a consortium of all the Metro Mayors, got behind Fast Tracks okay. and unanimously supported, support, yeah. unanimously supported uh, the Fast Tracks investment. So that That's was good. huge in getting it passed. That was an amazing story about the political support that's necessary to get the funding needed to implement the vision that your board and you saw. So you're in a unique position, not only uh, you know as a as a executive board member of our national association, but literally you're probably the highest run transit system in America. You can see over the mountain in Denver because you're a mile high, right? So what do you see coming for our industry? What's coming now? How do we remain relevant? You know, there's only a couple transit systems that are seeing growth in their ridership in the country. I know you're doing all kinds of cool things. What do you see coming and how do we get there? Great questions. I think, you know, we're, we're all focused on trying to solve this new mobility paradigm that we're calling it. We all are uh, looking at how do we provide more mobility options that are accessible and equitable and affordable? And the private sector doesn't have to worry about those things. Private sector just gets to go out and cherry pick the different kinds of services they want to do. But you know, what works for us works for them. I mean, we, we're all efficient, the most efficient when we're working in the most dense, uh, in the most dense areas. So, so we've got work to do to stay, to stay relevant. I'm glad to see lately though, in the conversations we're seeing from folks, is that you know maybe a year ago there was a lot of conversation about all these new technologies and these new mobility services are going to replace transit but now we're starting to see how some of them are contributing to congestion and people are saying yeah those things are really good complementary and yeah they may replace some of our less efficient kinds of services but transit is the backbone i mean transit when you when you see and we've all seen the slides of here's 100 people in cars here's 100 people in uber and lyft cars here's 100 yeah. people in autonomous and 100 autonomous vehicles and here's 100 people in a bus or a, or a train, right? And the congestion limits. So while I think we've got a lot of challenges and a lot of opportunities, we've been working on things on how we're using technology largely to make the, the customer-facing experience more friendly, mm -hmm. more tech-driven, and more truly on demand. I think it's really going to be challenging, though, as, as we're all talking about this, uh, really to be efficient with those services, is still going to remain incredibly and challenging. An area in tech where we've been, I think, really successful is I think we have just about every way a person can buy fare within our system now. We just implemented mobile ticketing last year. The great thing about mobile ticketing, you know how all these tech projects and system projects go. I think we took that project from RFP to stand up in four months. It was operational. Holy moly. And so that's the great thing, I think, about a platform like, like mobile ticketing that's not as challenging as a smart card system. Right. We've, we've all been through yes. the pain and suffering. Yeah, yeah of standing up smart card systems. And, and you know, now what I think about is when I look at our smartphones, I'm thinking about, you know, in, in four or five years, what is the device or non-device that we're going to be using that we rely on our smartphones now? So I, I think the challenges that, that we need to be thinking about and down the road on is really thinking way out. But we talk a lot about the labor in our industry. And, and you know, that that's something maybe I'll, maybe I'll touch on in a moment. But one of the areas where I see a gap is who are the people that can think about these things yes. and bring those ideas together? You know, it's, it's like, I don't know who they are. Yeah. I don't know if it's well, a bunch of... Well, you guys of, are up to your necks and alligators. You know, you <laughs> a bunch of young tech guys. Right. So, yeah. you know, so it's in our organizations. We almost need like this innovation lab where we bring in, I don't know what you call them, right. the, the best and brightest, but, you know, younger, tech savvy, you know, and throw them in a room and, and see what they come out with. But Yeah, those innovators, right? Yeah, because it's hard for us as we're in the day-to-day -day job yeah. of just delivering services 
to get out on those edges. And we talked about jobs earlier and headcount. Right. And, yes. And, you know, that's an area where it's like, hey, you know, you go to your board and say, hey, I need this group to be working on this stuff or we're going to miss the boat. So I think that's a. Are you doing that? Are you, are you bringing area. in some of the young innovators at RTD? We're kind of on the edge of that. We stood up a continuous improvement and innovation group about a year or two ago. Good. But we need to be doing a lot more with innovation. We really do. One of the things we did just this year is we we've stood up what I call a regional mobility strategy, and kind of along the conversations we've been having at APTA that. I call it, you know, we're on the cusp of a transportation transformation. And if we don't lead it, we're going to get left behind. Yep. So I've rallied my team and I've rallied our board around this concept of transportation transformation. We've made it a strategic priority for 2019. We've already started to pull together the transportation staff, people at the local and the county level, so we can have this, this, this dialogue around regional mobility. Because my concern is that you know, the, the local jurisdictions and folks, everybody's getting impatient. They want to do their own things, but we need to maintain this regional focus. And as the public transit provider in our region, I want to be leading that conversation. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to provide all the services, but let's be smart about, number one, identifying the problem we're trying to solve, that we're putting solutions out there that don't contribute to the problem, i.e. contribute to congestion, and that there's still regional links in what we're all doing. So if there's economies of scale that we can leverage and things like that. We're also participating in our organization in the thing called the Mobility Choice Blueprint. It's a partnership between the transit agency, our MPO, Denver Regional Council of Governance, and our uh, state transportation group, CDOT. And so we all three are funding partners in this. We've brought in a firm, HDR, I believe, is the, is the firm that's doing this. At the end of a year, they're going to have a mobility blueprint for us. It's going to be focused on kind of the long-term planning. It's got a lot of stakeholder engagement in there. But we're also doing our own parallel yeah. activities as well. So we're spending a lot of time talking about this mobility. We dedicate a, an hour every week, my staff does, to just talking about transportation transformation. And it's a time where we just, it, it is kind of an innovation lab for us because it's a time where we just, we have a topic or two every week. We brainstorm around it. We have agendas around it. We want to make sure we're leaving no stone uh, unturned in this area and then, you know, see what, you know, what we can throw against the wall that's going to stick. Wow. That's great. I don't know anybody else who's doing that. That's spending time with their top leadership team just talking about tomorrow and not talking about today. What a great way to close out this interview. We were talking with Dave Genova today, who is the um, CEO, Chief Executive Officer, and General Manager of one of the, I think, one of the best-run transit systems, one of the most innovative transit systems in America. Thanks so much for spending time with us today, Dave. And we look forward to uh, following you in the, in the transit press because you guys have something going on every other week, it seems like, and seeing all the great innovations you're going to do and help lead our industry. Thank you, Paul. Enjoyed the conversation. Great. You've been listening to Transit Unplugged, powered by Trapeze Group. To stay up to date, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, or join the conversation at transitunplugged.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>